This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 7th, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. The seemingly sudden uprising of teachers in several states is over money. Money for public schools, money for pensions, money for salaries. Cato's Neil McCluskey looked at some of the recent data on school spending. We spoke Friday. Several states have had, let's just call them disputes, between teachers and the government over pay, over benefits, and over education funding, which of course is strongly correlated with pay because teachers are the most expensive part of a school. Um, So what have you looked at with regard to the data on, at the very least, per-pupil funding for education in these states? Well, so the first thing is that as long as I've been involved in education policy, and, and probably long before that, uh, we've always heard people saying the public schools or our particular school or our district is underfunded or funding has been slashed or we've, we're cutting to the bone and things like that. And if you look at per-pupil sp- expenditures, at least the national average, and you go back um, really, you could go back from 2007-08 back to the 1930s, and it's been a tale of almost endless increases in spending, huge uh, increases, uh, even uh, adjusting for inflation for, for many, many decades. You could probably go back a century if you wanted to, although federal data gets inconsistent before the 30s. But anyway, we've seen huge increases in spending until you get to 2007-08 which is the when the Great Recession really hits. And nationally and in many states, we actually have seen kind of uh, uh, a sort of evening out uh, and in some cases some cuts in what was spent per pupil. So it may just be what we've been looking at now since the Great Recession is actually a case of reality coinciding with the rhetoric. It's not that I think necessarily that the rhetoric wasn't there before. It was, but but at least since 07-08, we've seen actually what we've been told was going on has gone on in many states and kind of on a national level. Although the data we have is only from 0708 to 2014-2015, and even if you go back just a few years, there's been another rising trend. It's just in many places it hasn't caught up to this peak that we were at in 07-08. So in the, the states that uh, – three of these five states at the very least, um, Oklahoma, Kentucky, and West Virginia, these are not uh, high-income states. And so it, it seems relevant to look at at least you know a fraction of – what that state's ability to pay is and how much of that is devoted to education. Does anybody really do that? Um, I haven't ever looked at as a percentage of state GDP. You can certainly find national spending as a percentage of, of, so of, of, of gross national product, and you can compare it to other countries. I haven't seen that at the state level, but it could probably 
be done. Um, and it's it's the case in almost every state that uh, one of the most expensive things, one of the most expensive things in the state budget is education. Sometimes uh, health care is in there uh, too, but education is always one of the biggest. Um, the thing is that we don't see, at least at a state aggregated level, all that strong correlation between what's spent per pupil and the outcomes. Utah is one of the lowest spenders per pupil. It may be the lowest. And all gets high outcomes. A whole lot goes into education outside of what's spent, outside of what the schools do, that by far have bigger effects on this, the test outcomes. So what do we know about, uh, you know, we have funding per pupil. That's the, the sort of generic general measure that people use to measure the, uh, the I guess, the health of uh, public schools with respect to funding, uh, or the health of the funding at the very least. But where does that money go. Yeah, so this is uh, where it gets kind of tricky is to decide or to determine where the money is actually being spent. And the federal government has an, um, it collects all sorts of data, and you can go to the Digest of Education Statistics, which uh, puts it all in a pretty usable form. You can download all sorts of Excel forms uh, or Excel uh, uh, files, and you can find a breakdown that says, well, here's the amount that's spent on instruction. Here's the amount on spent for various types of support for instruction. Here's capital outlays. Um, and from that, you can begin to see uh, that you know, most states, even these states that have struggled, have have tried to generally keep instructional spending uh, pretty level. Um, where you see a lot of fluctuation is actually in capital spending. So what you're spending on either new buildings or buying property or to, to improving the physical structure of the schools. That's where we see a lot of kind of up and down fluctuation. And then the areas where you see a big percentage increase in nationally, and as you look at these states that have seen the most unrest, is in support staff. So not the teachers, but the psychologists, the reading pathologists, or uh, language pathologists, and those sorts of people. And also, it seems to be in some administrative spending. Um, and that sort of tracks with, if you look at uh, pupil-teacher ratios versus pupil-staff ratios, and what percentage spending goes to teachers versus other staff. We've seen in, in the last 15 years, it's even bigger if you go further back than that, but we have consistent total data for 15 years. We've seen that the amount going to teachers has actually decreased, while the amount going to all this other staff has increased. So what we seem to be seeing is lots of fluctuation in what's spent on buildings, and then the increases have been pretty steadily going toward the non-direct teaching staff. That said, those are starting at much lower dollar levels, so as percentages they've been big increases, but the dollar sizes haven't been as big. In my home state of Kentucky, uh, one of the big beefs between teachers in the state has been state pensions and uh, making sure that, that, that those benefits stay uh, as strong uh, as they as they can be, and and are the, they Kentucky recently passed legislation that alters pensions for future teachers, but not for current ones. And in exchange for this general teacher pension that uh, Kentucky teachers have received, they do not participate in Social Security. 
So I'm at least, you know, pretty sympathetic to the idea that, look, you know, if you're going to have this entire group of people, this massive group of people not participate in Social Security, which, of course, is a terrible investment, um, but it is a it is a relatively guaranteed uh, stream of income in retirement, that's a pretty legitimate gripe. What are some of the other uh, legitimate gripes that you see from teachers in these various states? Yeah, we hear a lot about uh, the teacher compensation, and uh, unfortunately, uh, usually the teacher compensation battle on both sides is either framed as teachers aren't getting paid enough or teachers are getting paid too much. Uh, And that there's a whole lot of complication, as you're talking about, in how they're compensated. But the first thing we need to say is we don't actually know whether teachers – in general, or teach any given teacher is being paid too much, not enough, uh, should be paid a whole lot more because we have to remember that teachers are functioning not in a free market. They're functioning in a command economy where supply and demand has almost no impact on how they're paid. So it could very well be that if we, uh, if we let families choose the schools that they went to, that they paid a lot of their own money for it, that they would choose schools where teachers get paid a whole lot. Um, And so uh, I want to sort of caution everybody who gets involved in this from saying, well, they're paid too much or not paid enough because we just don't know because we don't have a free market where people decide based on all the other things that they need to spend money on how much they think is right to spend on education and how much is right to pay a teacher. But the compensation question gets very uh, difficult. So I was just speaking with somebody who's in Arizona, which is really probably the the worst case scenario for teachers where we really have seen, at least since the Great Recession, a drop in spending. Though, again, every state had huge increases for decades before this, but there has been a drop. And what this uh, this guy who, who analyzed education was telling me is, you know, a lot of teachers in Arizona do have a legitimate gripe because even when they're told they're going to get a pay increase, it's put in a form where the, the, the way the money is categorized is it's for instructional staff or something. But they, that may not mean it's actually going to a teacher. It could be going to somebody else. And there are teachers that really haven't seen a meaningful pay increase in a long time. So the first thing is we can be spending money that we say is for teachers that aren't really going to them. Then there's the whole question about uh, teachers often do actually have a pretty generous pension that they can look forward to. That is, if they stay long enough that they get fully vested, which is a big question. But being able to say you're going to draw a pension is a lot of security that a lot of other people would trade a fair amount of salary to get. Uh, same goes for if you get tenure, it's harder for you to be uh, to let be let go as a teacher, and so you add that job security. And then there's a huge question about how much time do they actually work. So there's the time they're contracted to, which is far fewer hours than somebody who works, you know, 2,000 hours a year or whatever. Um, there is built-in vacation time, but on the flip side, teachers say, look, but we spend a lot of time beyond what we're contracted for doing work for students, and that's probably also the case in many instances. But again, what this is ultimately telling us is we don't actually know how much they should be compensated. They're compensated based on a top-down formula in almost every state and almost every district. And any given teacher probably doesn't fit in that formula no matter what. And all teachers, it's quite possible, should get paid more and would if we let people freely choose what they spend on education. So for uh, the people who are critics of uh, public education and the 
um, who feel that teachers are receiving too generous uh, a a salary or benefits. And, and I'll, I have to admit that in some states, the the pension promises that have been made are uh, massive, and uh, I I think they're extremely generous in in some ways. But when you calculate in, or should you calculate in? Teachers get summers off. Teachers, uh, you know, they or the the flip side would be well, they have master's degrees, so they're entitled to to uh, some pay that is commensurate with having earned that degree. Or does any of that matter? Yeah, well, we sure don't want to go with credentialism. That the idea that just because you get a degree means you could get you should get paid more. It may be that teachers who get a degree um, become better teachers as a result of their studies, um, or it may be that one way to compensate to reward teachers is to to pay them more for this uh, for getting a degree. Um, but again, we need a free market to decide this rather than saying sort of. We're going to decide through a political process and we're going to apply it as a blanket to everyone that you should get your compensation via a big pension versus via a big salary now. Or you should get compensation based on having a degree versus not having a degree. We can't really say this is the right or wrong way to compensate teachers because we don't have competing uh, models by which to do it. And Every teacher, like every person, is a unique individual and should be rewarded as such. And we don't allow that to happen. And I, I should also say that I, I do think that when we look at pensions, a lot of people would say, well, that looks very generous. But there's a, there's a huge question about whether states will actually be able to honor those promises. And we've seen states that have already, I think Illinois in particular, suddenly found, you know what? We made a lot of promises to you teachers, so we can't possibly pay it. Now, then it becomes a big political struggle. Do the taxpayers pay it? Do the teachers pick it up? Who is it that ends up getting shortchanged here? Um, but, you know, it's a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush or whatever that saying is. If you're being promised a big pension, there's a chance maybe you won't get it because it's easy to promise and it's very hard to deliver. Many of the protests, of course— um I've followed Kentucky more closely than other states, but in many of these protests around the state, the animosity against school choice is rolled right into other criticisms that teachers have for uh, the funding that they receive. They argue that charter schools or vouchers or tuition tax credits or education savings accounts, these are things that essentially are draining the public school of resources. And when you take good, these higher income students or students that, as one teacher said, can afford to get out, out of these schools uh, and let them go to schools of choice or ch uh, schools that are pa their parents have, have chosen, you make this public school look worse. Yeah, well, it's not a surprise that, that this is something we hear a lot. I haven't heard it as the primary concern, but it's certainly one of the, the big concerns. The primary is just that, well, people should be taxed more to pay more for education. Um, and it's not a surprise to hear this. For one thing, a lot of teachers, uh, I think they just want to teach. And so they're not 
uh, delving into the details of all sorts of policy debates, even in education. And if you look at it just on the surface, certainly you'd say that, okay, well, if a child is, you know, we're spending $15,000 in the district and they get to take $10,000 to a charter, well, we're losing $10,000. And you could say, sure, that's draining money. You then have to, though, dig deeper and you'd say, well, but then we get to keep the $5,000, which lets us spend more per pupil uh, on our schools. But most people, again, if they have a job, they're a teacher, they want to go, they want to teach, and they're not spending a whole lot of time on these issues, it's certainly understandable where, where they would just sort of take what they've been hearing and say, yeah, well, it's draining, it's draining money and that's not good because we think money is important. It's also probably the case that the teachers were tending to hear from uh, are ones who are the more activist teachers, and they may know more about how the money is actually spent, um, but they, for you know, philosophical reasons or whatever, uh, are, are hostile to choice, and they're going to say it's draining money even though they know that the context is a lot different from what they're saying. Um, but I, I think we should always try and uh, not make teachers the enemy in this. Certainly, if they're saying things that are incorrect, they need to be corrected. But teachers are, you know, they're kind of victims in this system, too, where they've got to deal with monopoly employers. They often have to deal with a union that the monopoly employer says, we're only going to operate, we're only going to deal with you through this union. And they've been in a system like this for, you know, it's been 100 years at least, it's been more than 100, but that we've really had this locked into place. Uh, and so they may not even be able to conceive of a different way of doing this very – at least they can't conceive of it very easily. And so we shouldn't be upset when they say things like this. And we should be trying to let them know why they would be better off if we moved to a system of school choice where good teachers could get rewarded and would because people would be willing to take their – would be taking their money more and more to the schools that are effective. And the schools that are effective are the ones that are going to have – effective teachers. Um, and I don't think we've done a good job, you know, the school choice community or whatever it is, whatever you want to call it, in talking to teachers about the benefits of them of getting away from a monopoly where they don't have a whole lot of power as individuals to say, look, I do a good job. I want to be compensated according to the value that I'm delivering to this school and for the kids. You mentioned uh, unions and how they sort of play uh, in some cases, an involuntary uh, mediator role on behalf of teachers. And uh, one of the biggest cases relating to uh, t uh, public sector unions, Janus v. AFSCME, will come down or is expected to come down uh, in June. So how what role does that play, do you think, in this sort of sudden groundswell of uh, as this outpouring of protest from teachers in various states. I've seen some speculation that this is part of a union strategy um, uh, to uh, somehow send a message that uh, their role is extremely important. It protects uh, not just teachers, but it protects all, all kids, all uh, schools. It, it protects American education. And that these have been launched to, to get that message maybe to the Supreme Court or maybe to states that may want to act if the Supreme Court says rules against the unions in Janus uh, that says to them, you can't you can't go after us because we're so important. Of course, Janice, all it's really saying is, uh, or at least what the plaintiffs are saying is, it is not right 
for as a condition of my working for a public school that the union gets to take money from me to essentially uh, not pay dues but pay the cost of they're representing me, which is inherently political. It's forcing me to support political speech. And I may not even like what it is they negotiate. Um, and so, uh, you know, that case is really just about you shouldn't be able to take people's money against their will for what a union wants to do. It wouldn't kill a union. It doesn't say you, you know, that unions must go away. Um, but it certainly seems possible that these sort of um, uprisings or whatever you want to call them are maybe being engineered because of Janice, but I don't actually get the sense, and I haven't read much from the people who are participating in them, that that that's what it's about. I, I really think that from what I can see, it's about teachers uh, and and other people who, who I care about education saying, it seems like our schools have not been getting the funds that they need and we want them to get the funds. I'm not sure that they're you know, that they're right about that. It depends on the state. Um, and I don't think we have good evidence that more funding leads to better outcomes, but it's certainly understandable why people would say that. Um, and when they see that funding has been kind of level and even in some cases dropped since the Great Recession, which seems like a long time ago to people, I mean, that's 10 years, um, they say this is uh, intolerable or unacceptable. And you can certainly understand where, where reasonable people would say that. And it's my sense is that's what most of the uh, unhappiness is about and that it's not really sort of manufactured outrage in order to somehow keep the Supreme Court or the ramifications of what the Supreme Court rules from hurting unions. Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. Podcast. 